Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrads.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right. <laughs> Glad that you're here this morning. Uh, it's a good weekend, a crazy weekend. So last night we, um, we did trunk or treat and it was, um, it, was, it was supposed to be, or at least we thought it was going to be a little bit more low-key. Turned out not to be so low-key. Uh, how many of you were, were here for that last night? Okay, so some of you, I don't know what happened, but there was thousands of people who showed up last night for our trunk or treat. And uh, it was great. It was a great event, um, super fun. But here's kind of some, this is, this is embarrassing for me, um, is I was speaking and halfway through, like at exactly, exactly 545, so 15 minutes before the end of service, 150 people stood up and left during the sermon. I was like, what is happening right now? I, did I say something? What is going on? And they just exited. Everybody exited. It was so crazy. I was like, are we done? Is this a signal that we're finished here? I don't even know how to recover from this right now. It was wild. Apparently they were going to help at Trunk or Treat, but I was like, we didn't plan this very well, I feel like. Anyway, so please don't do that today, is what I'm saying. Um, even if it's not good, just get on your phone or something. I'll get it, okay? I can take a hint. Um, just wait. Anyway, uh, glad that you're here this morning. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. So um, there was a, let's see, it was last Saturday night. I was sitting over here, and I was listening to the sermon. And uh, Doyle said something that, um, like, it kind of, it, I don't know, I don't know if it inspired me. I couldn't tell you what he said, to be honest with you. Uh, but he said something, and uh, something clicked on my mind, and I went, oh, next week, we're supposed to start a new series. And so we try to, you know, schedule these things out and kind of have a rough outline of what we're going to talk about. And, and I realized that's not the right series that we're supposed to do. Is I, I, it was going to be a theology series, and we're going to go through Romans, and, and we'll do it at some point. But I just realized that's not, I don't think that's the right series. And, and I was trying to figure out what was going on, and, and it wasn't just in my life, but I feel like kind of in, in culture. And, and I realized something, is for the last 18 months, I've been missing this thing called passion. Like, I haven't had any passion in my life. Now, I'm not talking about the fleeting kind of passion in which, you know, it's a, we're excited for a season or kind of this passionate relationship we might— No, I'm talking about, like, something that I'm passionate about that is lasting, that, that's a, a mountain to climb. And I realize one of the reasons why I, I think I've lost passion, and maybe you've lost your passion, is I've thought a lot about Cody in the last 18 months— now, I'm not saying you thought about me in the last 18 months. I'm saying you probably thought about yourself in the last 18 months because we've kind of been at the center of the universe in a lot of ways. We had a lot of time to think about what we want and our needs and what we like and dislike. And, and so we've gone through probably a roller coaster of emotions in the last 18 months, but passion has not been one of them. And so I thought, well, when was the last time that I was really passionate? And I realized when I was really passionate, like I, I, I woke up in the morning and it wasn't just this feeling, but it was a drive that I had. It was when I was connecting what I was doing with what God was doing in the world. And, and maybe it's because I haven't really seen what God's been up to, or I've just simply forgotten, and I haven't really connected to that. And so I thought, you know what, what we need to do is we need to pull back, and we, need to, we probably need to talk a little bit less about ourselves in this coming series, and a lot more about what God is doing in the world and how we can partner with that. And so here's kind of my warning, um, is this series is not about you, Okay. 
Whenever we hear a series, we always go, or we read something, like we read the, the, the Bible and we always insert ourselves into it. Like David and Goliath, guess who I am? David, obviously. It's like, no, you're not, man. You're like one of the anonymous people in the crowd back there watching David. That's not you. You're not David. Uh, but, but this series, it may have implications for you, but it's not really about you. And, and I think that's probably going to be something that's freeing. So here's the big idea. If you're not a Bible person, um, we're going to be going through the book of Nehemiah. And here's the big picture of the Bible. The big picture of the Bible is it's the story of uh, beginning with man's origins, where we came from. We were created by God. And it talks about what we were created for. Well, we were created to be in a relationship with him, to be loved by him, to love him, to be co-creators with him. And then it talks about our problem. The problem is that we have been separated from our creator. This thing called sin, rebellion against God, has entered into the world and into in, in our lives, and it separated us from him. And so the rest of the scripture is the story of God redeeming his creation, specifically you and I, humanity. And so we see this written throughout centuries, and uh, one of the main uh, key points, the way that God has done this, is through this nation of Israel. All the Old Testament is about Israel, or, or, or most of it. It's, a, it's really the story of God speaking to, starts as an individual, Abraham, and he raises up this entire nation of people. And this nation of people are God's chosen people. They're the ones whom God is going to reveal certain things about himself to, and then through them, he's going to bless the entire world. And so we see this story, and it actually does happen, and we get to this, this kind of climactic point, where, climactic point where it's the golden age of Israel. We have David and Solomon, and it looks like, wow, God is really going to do what he promised us. He's raised up this nation. He's going to bless the entire world through them, and then things start to fall apart. Because Israel has decided to uh, rebel against God and no longer follow his commandments, and that was like a prerequisite for, for their blessing was if they were faithful. And when they were not faithful, God pulled away his hand of blessing and things started to go downhill very quickly. Right after Solomon, the nation of Israel splits into two. And so in the north, you have Israel. And in the south, you have Judah. And the capital there is Jerusalem. And then they begin getting conquered by different nations. So in the north, Israel is conquered. And it's just very quickly wiped off the face of the earth. It just ceases to exist. We haven't seen it since. In Judah, in the south, they're still holding on for a little while. But then this king, King Nebuchadnezzar, comes along, Babylon, and he decides he is not only going to come and he's going to conquer, but he is going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. He's going to burn the gates. He's going to go into the temple. He's going to uh, desecrate the temple. He's going to march the people out into exile for the next 70 years. And so we have the people of Israel, God's chosen people, living under the captivity of the Babylonians. Well, then, uh, the, the, the next empire that comes is the Persian Empire. And remember, you, you've heard of him, Cyrus the Great. And he comes and he takes over Babylon and all the inhabitants, including the Israelites. And he says, all right, here's the deal. If you have been captured by the Babylonians and you don't want to be here, you can go home. Everybody go home, party's over. And so he allows people to start to return to Jerusalem. And there's a couple different uh, parties that do. And we see the story of this in Ezra and Nehemiah, which by the way, if you know anything about me, you know I love the story of Nehemiah. I try to revisit it at least like once every one or two years. In fact, I love the story so much. Um, I, was, I was really hoping to name our second child Nehemiah. Uh, Amy said no. And so I said, okay, well, how about Ezra? She said, yeah, that's good. Let's go with Ezra. Now, here's what my wife didn't know. 
Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book. We split it in two. I got my way, really, okay? So there you go. <laughs> Snuck that one in. Um, anyway, so this is where we're going to pick up our story, and we're going to go through in this series. It's about 100 years after they've been allowed to return. Now, some people have returned with very little success, but a lot of people are still living in exile. Nehemiah 1.1, if you have your Bibles, you guys can follow along. It says this, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, so this is like 440, 445 B.C., while I was in the citadel of Susa, which is the capital of Persia, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is asking, so what's happening back there in the old city, in Jerusalem? Is it still the way that things were? Now, what's interesting is Nehemiah had probably never been there before. He, he was born in exile, and he'd continued to live in exile, but he wanted to know what was taking place there because he had this deep attachment to it. Because it wasn't just this foreign land. This was like his, his home. This is the place that, because he understood God's promises, and he understood this plan, this redemption plan that God had, and he knew that Israel was a part of that, a central part of that. And so he wanted to know not just because he cared about the city, but he cared, he cared about what God was doing. He wanted to know, what's the spiritual, what's the moral condition? Because this is not just any city. This is the city of David. This is the city of Solomon's temple. This is where the Ark of the Covenant, this is where God's very presence once dwelt. What's its condition? Here's the report. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So this isn't really a big surprise. This is about 150 years that it's been in this condition. But like I said before, there was different groups that had been there. And so in the previous generations, like Ezra, he was one of the groups that had went and he was going to start a revival. He was going to bring people back to the true God and he was going to begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so he wanted to know what had happened in this last generation. Did any of that take place? Well, unfortunately, the city was still in ruins. Verse 4, for some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So he doesn't just receive this report and go, oh, that's too bad. Anyway, what are we going to do for lunch? No, it says that he mourns, that he cared deeply about the spiritual and moral condition of this city. And so when he heard that it was still broken, it really upset him. And here's the harsh truth, the reality, is the beginning of oftentimes a burden or a purpose for our life, or excuse me, a purpose for our life begins with a burden. So think about the people that you admire the most, whether you know them or not. Maybe it's the people that you've read biographies about or you've watched documentaries. Here is my guess. They were not Instagram influencers, right? They weren't people who were able to maintain their ideal body weight or go on five-star vacations that you and I can't afford. My bet is that they are people who had a burden for something that they saw in the world, something that wasn't right. And they said, I'm going to do something to change this. And it probably cost them something. It probably was a journey filled with adversity. Those are the people that we respect. Those are the people that we read about. Those are people that we want to emulate. We want our kids and our grandkids to be like. And so oftentimes what God does is he allows us to feel the weight, the burden of this issue, whatever the issue might be that he puts in front of us. He allows our hearts to break because sometimes that's the only way that we're going to wake up, that we're going to stop being apathetic and we're going to start caring. And so at this point, Nehemiah has no plans, no idea what he's going to do. He just has this burden for the city. And so he begins to pray. And let me give you a snapshot of his prayer here. He says this, Lord, the God of heaven, 
the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that your prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you have uh, you've given to your servant Moses. So um, recently, in the last year or two, uh, pronouns have been become a really hot topic, which I didn't see coming. And, uh, and so I just want to point out the fact that Nehemiah changed pronouns here. <laughs> You're like, where is he going with this? He goes from here's what I've done wrong to here's what we've done wrong. Here's the ways that I have rebelled against you, God. But then here's the ways that we, my, my family and even my people, my nation, here's the ways that we have rebelled against you. See, there's this idea that we, we love, we, want, we love the idea of corporate blessings, but we don't like the idea of corporate sins or corporate confession. So this last week, I had the uh, privilege of going to the mayor's prayer breakfast, and they asked me to pray there. And uh, it's a great thing. I, I've been to it many times, and, and it's cool. The community comes together, different business leaders and political leaders and religious leaders, and we just begin to pray for the city and the community, and, and it's a time that we just ask God to, to bless us. And so when I got up there, if I was thinking and I had the courage, what I should have done was follow Nehemiah's model of prayer, is I got up there and I said, okay, God, before we ask you to bless us, let me address some of the reasons why we may not be blessable. I'll start with myself. Uh, Lord, I'm guilty of gluttony. I trust cake more than I trust Christ. In fact, I know I'm not the only one. Table 12, let me tell you. They clearly are struggling as I am. No, okay, like that would be, that would be wild. But yet, why do we like the idea of, okay, God, we want you to bless us as a community, as a city, as a nation, and yet we're unwilling to say, and here's the reasons why you may not. And so let us just confess those right up front. Continues on, he says this. Verse 11, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. So here's what Nehemiah prays for. Two things. He prays for opportunity and favor. First thing he prays for is opportunity. See, most of us, when we see that there's an issue that needs addressed, what we will pray for is that God will intervene. God, can you show up and do something about this? Can you adjust their attitude? If it takes lightning, that's fine. Whatever you need to do, just show up. A miracle would work if you would just send somebody to fix this. That's how most of our prayers are. But he doesn't pray that way. He says, God, would you give me the opportunity to bring this change? Lord, I'm willing I will do whatever you call me to do. And if this is the issue that needs addressed, use me. Give me the opportunity to bring about change in this circumstance. And then he prays for favor. He knows that the king is not a, a generous man. Um, he's not very caring. And so when he goes and makes this request, and we'll find out what the request is in a moment, he's going to need God to show up in a big way. And then he ends the, the passage with this kind of random fact. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. So the cupbearer to the king, if you don't know, his job is he is the one that would taste the wine um, for the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And some of you guys are like, sign me up, I'll taste it. Um, see how it's Friday night. Uh, 
doesn't sound like a, a huge job to us, but it's actually a really important job because this man has to be one of the most trusted people in the kingdom because he's really guarding the king's life. And so he, at his fingertips, Nehemiah has all of these resources available. All of the king's resources he has at his fingertips. He's able to use them. And so I would imagine that it would have been so easy for Nehemiah to hear about these issues and just ignore it, not engage. These are not my people. That's not my problem. I've never even been there before. I didn't cause this mess. I'm just going to chill in the kingdom or in the king's palace. and I'm not going to worry about it. But Nehemiah has continued to be bothered by the moral and spiritual condition. By the way, I think where he's at, the position where he's at, we look at all the resources. I think it's probably the most dangerous place uh, to be a person of impact in that kind of situation. Because he's comfortable. And comfort is probably the thing that stops most of us from doing anything impactful. Is when we're comfortable, we can just talk ourselves out of anything. Well, okay, you know, uh, maybe later down the road, once I, you know, my kids are a little older, then, then I'll do it. Once I have a little bit more money, once I retire, once I, we're comfortable. And so we'll talk ourselves out of anything that could take some sort of sacrifice. And here's what he remembers. He remembers that God blesses us to be a blessing to others. Nehemiah, uh, like the story of Esther, which took place at this, this exact same time, he understood that he was put in this position, not for his own needs to be met, but so that he could meet other people's needs. That this wasn't just a coincidence, that he didn't deserve all of this, that he was put there in order to be a good steward so that he could leverage these certain things in order to bless other people, which is true of you and I. I just got done doing a, a talk this morning for the rooted groups that meet on Sunday morning, and I was talking about how blessed we are. Like, we're rich. Like, we're filthy rich here. And you go, I'm not rich. I drive a hoopty. It's like, no, you're rich. You drive. That's crazy. We talk about the 1%. You are the 1%. Globally, you and I are the 1%. We're sitting in a room with electricity, fairly comfortable. Um, we're well-fed, and we have air conditioning. That is, like, beyond what most people in human history have ever experienced before. We are blessed. When we look at Nehemiah, he is blessed and so he says, you know what? I didn't receive all of this so that I could consume, but so that I could, could give. So Nehemiah, he's forcing himself to get outside of his comfort zone, to do something that's going to impact other people. And so he's ready, he's willing, he's praying. And guess what happens next? Nothing. <laughs> he just sits there and waits. He's waiting. God, I'm here. I'm willing. I'm ready. What do you want me to do? And nothing happens. Next chapter, in the month of Nisan, the, uh, the, tw the 12th year, 20th year, 20th year of King Ar Artaxerxes. Okay, you don't know what that means. I clearly don't either, um, but <laughs> I can't read it, to be honest with you. <laughs> Here's what I do know, though, <laughs> it's, uh, is this is like this is about four months after the beginning of the story. So he has this burden from the report about Jerusalem. Four months goes by. Nothing has happened. He just sits there and he waits. And we see this with many of the major biblical figures is God calls them and then they're stuck for a while. Sometimes we refer to this as the desert experience. Because we're stuck in the desert. Why are we not moving we see this with Moses and Joseph and David, Jesus, Paul, here in Nehemiah, is they're just stuck waiting for something to happen. It's not anything that they're doing or not doing. It's just as if God is just saying, no, nope, you're going to have to stay there for a while. 
The temptation is that while we're in this time of waiting, that we'll quit, we'll settle, we'll give up. This is where most dreams come to die, is in the desert. I think that if it was true back then that they hated waiting, it's even more true that we hate waiting. We love instant everything. Communication, instant. Entertainment, instant. Gratification, instant. Knowledge, instant. Food, instant. We want it right here, right now. My kids are, are, are even worse than I am, and that's saying something. So uh, my son has really gotten into football recently. And so I'm trying, I, I've never been into football, so I'm trying to like, okay, I got to keep up with this kid so we know what we're talking about. And so we've begun watching football games at uh, Nan and Papa's house. We have to watch it over there, not only because they like football, but because they have this thing called cable television, which we do not have. Um, and apparently cable television has what's called live TV. Now, don't ask me about it. I don't know. But live TV is when you're watching a program when it's happening live. I know, right? Some of you guys who are younger than me, you're like, they do that? Yeah, they do that. And so we're watching it, and as we're watching it, um, they go to this break, and the first time that Ezra saw this, he was so confused. He goes, okay, can we fast forward past this part? Can we skip this part? I go, no, buddy, you can't skip this. This is called a commercial. He goes, what? All three minutes? We're going to do this for three minutes? No. Like, and he's getting mad. He's just like, you're, you're doing this on purpose, aren't you? <laughs> like, no, buddy, this is, this is actually how things used to be not that long ago. And he is just frustrated. Like, he doesn't understand. Why are they stopping the program I'm watching right now? <laughs> Amen, that's right. I said, because they're greedy, buddy. They're greedy. That's why they're, no, I didn't say that. Um, it's, it's so he's even worse at, the, getting worse at this. I think, you know, as a culture, this is true of us. It's just, we hate waiting. We don't want to wait. I want it right now. But here's what we're reminded, is waiting time is not wasted time if you use it correctly. So Nehemiah is going to use this time in order to plan and prepare for when God gives him this opportunity. So he's got to prepare. And some of us, we've got to prepare for whatever it is that God's calling us to. Because he oftentimes does the work in us before he's going to work through us. And so it might be there's some character things that we need to work on. As man, we're soft and we're not going to be able to preserve and persevere and through the difficulties that are ahead. And so God's building up some character in us. Or or maybe it's our faith. We've got to learn to trust him more. It's our skill set. There's certain things we just don't know how to do yet. It's knowledge. Or or maybe he's even preparing some things behind the scenes, some other people. He's orchestrating it in order to bring it all together at the correct time. So I uh, met with a couple weeks ago one of our rooted groups. I do a Q&A on apologetics. And I always get this is whenever we go into there, there's a few people who just absolutely love the program because it's all about science and philosophy. And then there's a big portion of people who go, I don't get it and I don't like it. And I, I, I said, look, I understand. You know, I, I get that this isn't for you, but maybe that's the point. And so we began to talk about in the group um, some of their families and some of their children who have walked away from the faith and they don't believe anymore. And I said, that's why you're studying. It's not for you. Look, you, you, this doesn't convince you of anything. You're not interested in these arguments. You don't care about the philosophy, but maybe that's not the point. Maybe this whole season is about you preparing for a conversation that may take place. And when it presents itself, when one of your kids is sitting at the dinner table and going, well, I'm not even sure if there's reason to believe God exists, you go, let's talk about that. Because you spent that whole season of waiting for that opportunity to have the conversation. You were ready. You were ready to engage. And so... 
We have to prepare and we have to plan. And let me just give a, a little word of encouragement for some of us. The last 18 months, I kind of, if you're like me, I felt like I haven't really accomplished anything. It was really hard to prepare and plan because I didn't know what was going to happen next. Every week was a surprise, usually not a great one. And I felt like I'm just trying to keep my head above water. I am on the defense. I am reacting. I have not, if I look at the last 18 months, I go, I made it. That's about it. That's about all I can say. I made it. Not a whole lot of wins in the last 18 months. But biblical success is determined by faithfulness, not fruitfulness. And this is really important to remember. See, God looks at success differently than we do. He says, you have been successful if you are faithful, not necessarily fruitful. What I mean by this is, think about Jesus. When was Jesus a a success? Like, when did God, from, from the Father's perspective, when was he successful? Was it the day that he did his first miracle? Or a parable? Was it when he was crucified? How about the resurrection? Was that when he was successful? No, none of those are true. The day that he was successful was the day that he said yes. We see, it's when he went to John the Baptist, and he was baptized, and he began his ministry. The father said, this is my son whom I am well pleased. The day he said yes to his call was the day that he became a successful person in God's eyes. It's important for us to remember. Because we may see the fruits of that success at some point, But we have to remember that every time we say yes to whatever it is that God's calling us to, that is what success really looks like. And so if you said yes in the last 18 months to, okay, God, do you want me to do this? It doesn't make any sense. I don't understand where it's going. I don't even like it. But you were successful. Maybe you saw the fruits of success. Maybe you didn't. But that's not the point. All right, let's continue on. Uh, Fast forward. Uh, So the king asked me, why does, your faith look so sad, why does your faith look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. See, he, he comes into the king's presence, and he's clearly sad. And th- this could be punishable by death. If he doesn't come into the king, and just, whoa, I'm so excited to be in your presence today. This is a fantastic. If he comes in sad, he could be punished for this. But because of their relationship... And it's clear that not only was he good at his job, that he was a loyal person of character, but there's been some sort of friendship that's developed here, that he's gone above and beyond what he was called to do. And so the king cares for him, and he wants to know what's wrong. He says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Oh, that's a question right there. The person who has all the resources in the world, what do you want? See, what what Nehemiah has done so far is he has built up, and we talked about this in the last series, what I call moral capital. Moral capital is the influence that you have, that you have earned through your loyalty, through your character, through your respect, through your trustworthiness, through serving others. You have built up a certain amount of moral capital that now you get to spend, you get to ask, you get to influence somebody with. Intuitively, we know how this works. We, we understand there's certain relationships that we've built up moral capital. And so um, let's say you're a young couple and you want to go buy your first house and they're requiring a co-signer on it. So you went to your parents. It wouldn't be that weird of a request. Hey, can you be the co-signer in this so we can get this house? Well, okay, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But let's imagine that you went out into the lobby and you were just meeting some new people and you're like, okay, what's your name? Oh, Cody. Like, Cody, by the way, um, how's your credit? Good. <laughs> Good, because I need a co-signer. Would you be willing to be a co-signer on my house that I'm trying to purchase? 
And they would say, no, we're finding a new church. This is weird. Uh, And it's because you haven't built up that moral capital. Well, he's built up this moral capital. And what's he going to spend it on? Is he going to spend it on himself? Hey, I was hoping for the, you know, a villa. I was hoping. No, he spends it on kingdom purposes. What do you want? Here's what I want. He has a plan. He's ready to go. I'm going to need some time off. I'm going to need traveling safety. So you're going to need to send some people with me. Um, I need some resources. So do you think you could pay for this project as well? And he just makes these huge requests. He says this, and because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my requests. And so uh, let me back up and I want to end with this. I got seven minutes to do it. Okay. Although do I get to add the time that I lost last night? You're like, I didn't do that. It's not my fault. Remember corporate confession? It was their fault last night? You pit? Okay, all right, we won't go there. Um, when we read the story of Nehemiah, and I've read it hundreds of times, I've taught through it, is on its surface, there's a couple things that immediately jump out. And we think maybe this is the point of the story. We can think of leadership principles. In the coming weeks, we're going to find out what a great leader he is. And we can deduce some principles from that. Or maybe it's like kind of a roadmap for how we can find our purpose in the world. And I think all of those are true. And I've taught on all those things. But there really is something bigger going on here. And let me give you a tip when you're studying the Bible. Is when you're reading an isolated story, pull back and see how this either connects to or points to the bigger story that's being told here. Because remember, the the Bible is a collection of different stories, but there is an overarching story in which it's talking about, uh, so like think about Nehemiah as a scene in the grand story. And so what is this scene trying to tell us about the bigger story? Well, let's do a quick review. Nehemiah was living in the palace where all his needs were met, and yet he left that all behind, not for his own benefit, but in order to serve and save the people In the coming weeks, we're going to see that he becomes one of them. He he stands face-to-face with them. He becomes a blue-collar worker to begin rebuilding what was lost due to their own sin and rebellion. He's going to build a city where the people of God could gather as citizens, united not simply by location, but by their belief and worship in the one true God. And through this community, God would make himself known to the rest of the world. Does that sound familiar at all to you? It should, because Nehemiah's story was just a pointer towards the ultimate story. See, Nehemiah was pointing towards the one who would step out of his heavenly palace and stand face to face with his people, not elites, but regular blue collar folks. He didn't come because he had any need, but because of ours. He came to rebuild what was lost to sin, but it wouldn't be a city, it would be a kingdom. A kingdom made up of people who have given their lives over to, them, to him. Even those who were living in exile were once far off or welcomed into this kingdom. And he wouldn't just do it at the risk of his life, but ultimately he would give it. And he began this movement where these kingdom people could gather together, just like in the city of Jerusalem, pray and worship and learn together. He would call it the church. And it's through this movement, the church, that God would make himself known to the rest of the world. So here's where the series is going to go. Nehemiah was called to rebuild the city of God in Jerusalem. We are called to build the church And so in the coming weeks, we're going to see what that looks like. But I just want to give you three things to take home with you. First one is this, is Nehemiah had a burden. He was a man of conviction and courage. He was all about God's plans above his own. And he felt this this huge burden. And I think this isn't just for Nehemiah. This is for all Christians about the spiritual and moral condition of God's people. And he was a returner. 
Lots of people were living in exile at that time. And, and here's what I think they may have realized, especially Nehemiah, is living in exile isn't all that bad sometimes. It's kind of comfortable. I mean, like, yeah, I know that we're created to, to be in community with God's people and we're supposed to spur on one another and love and we're supposed to, but like living in exile sometimes can be really, really comfortable. Like Nehemiah was living the good life. Now, it's short-sighted because who was coming next wasn't going to be comfortable. The Roman Empire was going to take them over next. They weren't going to enjoy that. But here's what I've noticed. In the last 18 months, the thing that has had the biggest impact in my life, for sure, and maybe in yours, is um, what, the, what the last 18 months has done to the, the, the status of the church here in the West, especially in more secular places like we live, is uh, about 50 or 60% of the people have returned, meaning about 50 or 40% of the people who were once involved in church, who are here every weekend, who are giving, who are serving, have disappeared. Like, you know, there's that whole, uh, you've been ghosted thing. Like when a friend just stops responding or you're dating somebody and then you're not dating them, but you never talked about it kind of thing. That's sort of what happened in church world. A big chunk of people ghosted us. Not just us, like all churches just went like, it's kind of nice out here in exile. It's kind of comfortable. I can kind of do what I want to do. I don't have to waste all that time on Sundays to go to church. Problem is, is, is not only were you made to be in community, and you're here, you get that, if you're online. <clears throat> anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, let's address that. Let's address that really quick. Uh, here's the thing with online stuff. I get it. There's people who they have to watch online. They just can't be in person. I understand. I get that. That's a very small percentage of people. Like, can we be really honest? You're good with it. You don't care. You feel great about this conversation right now. Uh, Here's how I know that they can be here, because they're golfing right now. <laughs> or they're at a restaurant with their friends and their family. They're going on vacation. I, I, I know what happens on social media. I see. I can see. I'm like, you used to, you're not afraid. <laughs> you're clearly not afraid. You're at the Rams game right now. You're not afraid, okay? <laughs> Sorry, that's too much. Okay. I'm going to get in trouble. I'm out of time. Let me get a whole thing. I won't notice if they're mad, though. <laughs> you know, it's like, what are they going to do? Beep. <laughs> yes. Uh, what are you going to do? Sorry. Ugh. Doyle stepped out of service five minutes ago. Can you tell? Better watch online. Um, <laughs> anyway, here's the thing. Is not only do, do we need to be here together um, because it's good for us, but it's good for everybody else. It, is community isn't just about what it can do for you. Nehemiah was comfortable. He was good. He was chilling in the palace. But here's what he knew, that even if he didn't necessarily need it, God's people needed it. And that's what I think people miss about being in community here at churches. It's not just about you being here and something you get out of it, and I hope that you do, and I hope that you get a lot out of it. It's also about what you can give back, what you can contribute. One of the things I love seeing right now is in our Rooted groups, we have people who have gone through Rooted for years, develop strong communities, and then go back and start Rooted groups fresh because they've seen the experience that they've had, and they don't need to be in Rooted with these new people, but these new people need to be in Rooted with them. I love that. Because they get the idea we're here for one another. So one of the things I, uh, I think about is, gosh, I'm going there. I'm just going to go there. Um, how very few Christians are concerned about the condition of the church. Like, I know you're passionate about certain things because I've heard your political opinions. And I've heard you fight the culture war. 
But I kind of wonder if you had just taken all of that energy and you applied it to caring about the thing that God said would actually change the world, if that might be a better use of your time. Because like if you did that and you cared that much about the condition of the church and trying to make sure that God's people are taken care of and try to bring more people into this family, if you cared about that, here's what I, I bet would happen. You'd be a lot less stressed about those other things and those other things would begin to change because when you have a strong church, you have a strong culture. And so as the church declines, guess what happens to culture? And so maybe we've been focusing on the wrong things. And so... Two last things, blessing. We have been blessed so that we can bless others. And so what if we began to pray, okay, God, here are the things that you've blessed me with. How do you want me to use them? I want to be a good steward. One day I'm going to have to sit down with you and we're going to, we're going to review. What did you do with all the gifts that I gave you? I want that to go well. I want to make sure that I was a good steward of those things. So what do you want me to do with all these blessings? And then be ready. When God opens up that door of opportunity, we need to be prepared. We need to plan so that when he opens it, we know what we're supposed to do. So those are three things, super simple. First one, burden. Do you have a burden for the things that God cares about, specifically his people and his church? Second, blessings. Are you ready to use your resources, whatever they may be, in order to partner with God in what he's doing in the world? And finally, be ready. Be looking for those opportunities. Let's pray. Lord God. Uh, we thank you for uh, all, all the activities that are happening and all the fun things that we get to do and we get to be a part of, especially this weekend as it's kind of been, it's been fun and chaotic and it's been, but Lord, we just want to slow down for a moment. And in the midst of all the, the excitement, all the fun, we just want to remember what we're here to do. Lord, we are, are here not to serve ourselves, um, not to live a more comfortable life, but we are supposed to be about you and the kingdom. And so, Lord God, I know that I've been way too focused in on Cody recently, and there's probably some other people in this room who have been thinking a lot about themselves and not a whole lot about other people, especially about building your kingdom. And so, Lord, I just pray that this would be a moment in which we can change the conversation, we can refocus our energies on the things that you care about. Lord, we just pray that you would bless our efforts along the way. We love you, Lord. In name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time. 